0: the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Directive 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 Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always Mr. Luke Jacanetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to our episode today. And a bit of a bit of a milestone today. I don't know if it's really a milestone, but kind of one. So um, even though this is episode 78 of the show, if you count all of our Gaiden episodes and the one special that we did, this, believe it or not, is the 100th overall release of Earth Destruction Directive, and uh, I'm I'm pretty proud about that. I honestly never thought the show would be going quite this long. Looking forward to actually hitting episode 100 a little bit while, well, probably more than a little while down the road. But... Now, this is, like I said, the overall 100th release of Earth Destruction Directive, and I'm, I'm very happy that you decided to join us for it. Our previous episode, we took a look at Gamera vs. Zegra and Iron Man number 193, featuring a uh, later appearance of the Marvel Godzilla, along with Dr. Demonicus. Today, we are taking a look at uh, a Showa Godzilla film, a not particularly well-regarded one at that. We're taking a look at All Monsters Attack, also known here in the States as Godzilla's revenge. We're also going to be taking a look at three issues of Iron Man um, two of which only um, only going to touch on uh, 194 and 195 and then take a little bit longer to look at 196 kind of uh, wrapping up the story featuring the mutated uh, Marvel Godzilla and Dr. Demonicus, but before we get into that, we've got some news and we've got a fair amount of news. So we're gonna get right into it. So uh, Godzilla vs. Kong has been delayed It's release until November 20th, 2020. That's the weekend before Thanksgiving here in the United States. Now, we speculated about this very topic last episode, and this announcement actually came only a couple days after that last episode dropped, which is why I recorded that and then did the editing, got it posted, and it was like two days later that the delay was announced now no real specific reason was given for this delay at the time although back in june uh the possibility had been floated that uh, a delay was possible to give the film time to become quote an a plus picture so it's pretty easy to think that this was related to having time to complete post-production on the film and get the effects as polished as possible now personally speaking i don't mind a delay I'd always thought that the March time frame was was way too early, too quick on the heels of King of the Monsters coming out this past summer. Now, of course, I want the movie to be the best that it can be, and if that means an extra eight months wait is the cost, I'm cool with that. That doesn't bother me. Releasing the film right by Thanksgiving, that's also fine with me. I love Thanksgiving. I love turkey. I love the whole nine of it. So, you know, I was brainstorming. Maybe, Maybe an opening weekend viewing followed by a matinee on Black Friday with the family and yeah, I'm sure my wife will go for that <clears throat> anyway. Now, shortly after the delay was announced, the first clip, and I do mean clip as it's like 2 seconds long, was revealed at a Warner Brothers film panel at Comic Con Experience, which is a um, like a Comic-Con, big comic show in Brazil. Now, the clip was part of a larger presentation of films that uh, Warners is releasing in Brazil in 2020. So, like I said, it's pretty brief. Uh, The main thrust of the panel was actually Wonder Woman 84, which, while very exciting, and as far as I can tell, doesn't seem to have any daikaiju in it. I'm I'm just saying. Now, the clip itself, it features the legendary Godzilla and the legendary Kong, who are now the same height, so obviously Kong kept growing from Skull Island, as was... uh, Speculated they're facing each other while standing on an aircraft carrier with Kong delivering a sort of Superman punch to Godzilla Now if you're like me, this has you hyped beyond belief Kong throwing fists at Godzilla on the deck of an aircraft carrier I'm in you know I feel like Philip J. Fry shut up and take my money now, of course this being 2019 going on 2020 the internet responded as you would expect with some very vocal folks clearly unhappy that both Kong and Godzilla could fit on the back of an aircraft carrier. Which is, you know, that's all well and good as far as nerd complaints go, but for the love of Mothra, can we at least wait until we see the scenes clearly not from shaky handheld footage that was taken down off of Twitter shortly after it was put up before we lose our minds? You know, I I talked about this back when King of the Monsters came out, I'm 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 just excited to see Godzilla and Kong slug it out in the big screen in 2020. It's just like I was hyped for Godzilla and Rodan and Mothra and King Ghidorah in the last film. This clip has done nothing but amp that up for me. Uh, you know, for me, 2020 there's only Godzilla versus Kong. 2019 a lot of big movies. There was that something with Thanos. Man, you might have seen that one. King of the Monsters was the movie for me in 2019, 2020. Godzilla versus Kong, all the way. Now shifting gears a bit to Ultraman news now um we talked about this before but just kind of to, to close the loop on it so to speak a final judgment was issued right at the beginning of december from the u.s court of appeal for the ninth circuit in favor of subaraya confirming the earlier ruling back from november of 2017 uh, that subaraya owns all of ultraman including the rights to export that property elsewhere in the world now, you'll probably remember that chayo which was the thai outfit which Long held that they owned the distribution rights to Ultraman ex- everywhere except Japan, based on a letter supposedly signed by Subaru's son. That letter was determined by the courts to be a forgery and not a legal document. That was what this. Uh, I'm trying to remember all the details. If I want to say it started out in a Thai court, and then the Thai court sided with Chayo and so some other re- legal wranglings. I think is because. Chayo was trying to sell Ultraman in the U.S. It got the venue moved to the United States. And then the U.S. courts were siding with Subaraya all the way up, I said, to the Ninth Circuit Court. Um, So, with Subaraya winning this this ruling and the appeal, Chayo, at this point, they have really no recourse except to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And frankly, that just seems unlikely. I mean, there's, there's been. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not going to get political. There's actual, like, important cases that go to U.S. Supreme Court. The rights to Ultraman, I don't think that Chayo has the money or the chutzpah to really take it all the way to the Supreme Court. And frankly, I hope that if they apply for that, it gets thrown out just on, 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 on its face, frankly. Um, but now hopefully, hopefully, this is the last that we will have to hear about all this legal wrangling and that Subaraya will be able to do what they wish as far as exporting Ultraman. Now, speaking of exporting Ultraman, the next two sets from Mill Creek, Return of Ultraman and Ultra Fight Orb slash Orb Origin, those Blu-rays are up for pre-order on Amazon. The release date is February 20th, 2020. So uh, be sure to check those out. Now, we still have a few more coming down the pipe. Uh, they've also announced Ultraman RB series and movie set. This is similar to... The uh, Orb and Jeed sets, where it has the series plus the follow-up movie, and Ultraman Ace, the next uh, Showa series. Those are coming later in spring of 2020. We don't have a, a more firm date on that. Uh, as I'm recording this, Ultra Seven was just released, so we're up to and uh, by February we'll have to return, and then later on Ace. So we're going to very quickly finish up the uh, the Showa era um, Ultra series. Because following on after Ace is, let's see, Jack, Ace, Taro, and Leo. And then we start getting into some of the the 80s. And things are, Ultraman 80 is the one that comes after Leo. And things are a little bit different there. We get the animation and stuff. I I haven't heard anything about how the animation fits into this. We get Ultraman USA. uh, And then we get, you know, uh, the the English language series, you know, uh, um, towards the future and uh, ultimate hero so we'll see what happens with those but uh, i'm also looking forward to getting some of the heisei shows like tiga you know that uh, the tiga dvds were always kind of wonky and three of them three of the four were easy to find but one of them was super hard to find so be interesting to see where that goes i am all in on this as i've said so uh, i am eager to get my hands on all the ultraman just all of it so uh shifting gears again Raiga God of the Monsters is up for pre-order it releases on February 25th now You might be saying look. I've never heard of this movie now. This is actually the second film from director Shinpei Hayashiya and uh, this follows on from his earlier film deep-sea monster Rago, Aka just released on DVD a little while ago Reigo, King of the sea monsters now I, I own Rago, but I have not seen it yet and that will be rectified soon enough that's a preview, folks. And Raiga looks pretty cool as well. Um, these are independent uh, films that were uh, Daikaiju film from the 2000s. Uh, I've heard about these for years. It was very neat to see them get a wide DVD release. Uh, I actually was just uh, reading some stuff on Twitter about how a lot of people are mistaking these for like mockbusters based on the way that the DVD art looks and the English titles that they've been given. And I kind of have to agree, because I did have, um, I want to say it was Mark Kallenbach, and if it wasn't you, Mark, I'm sorry, and whoever it was, if I get this wrong, I apologize. I don't have it right here in my notes. I actually posted on my Facebook saying, oh, I must have missed this one, but maybe it's a good thing I did, thinking it was a mockbuster. And and you look at the art, and it definitely is. Kind of in a different context, but it reminds me a lot of the um, Yungari, the remake of Yungari, which... Uh, was released in the United States as Reptilian and was given a box art on its DVD release to really tie into Godzilla 98 and looks like a Godzilla 98 ripoff. So a little bit different context. Yungari was not truly an independent film in the way that these are. And I do understand kind of the frustration of people looking at them and dismissing them because they think they're just knockoffs um and to me it's kind of a double-edged sword i understand that frustration but at the same time i'm just glad these are getting a release at least even if they're not going to necessarily play to a wide audience i don't know that these indie daikaiju films were going to find a super wide audience to begin with so at least the the hardcore daikaiju fans or even the more casual ones that would have picked it up at walmart or whatever get to see it so at least it's out there I, i i totally understand the idea that these aren't given uh you know by by making them look like mockbusters it doesn't give them a whole lot of respect and i totally get that i understand that at the same time i'm just glad like i said they're getting a release and we have an opportunity to see them uh in a in a relatively easy format so looking forward to that so that's all the news i've got for now um, I've got an email with, uh, some, some information about some upcoming stuff as well. We'll get to that in the, uh, listener feedback section. If you have any news, please go ahead, send it in, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Gladly read it on the show and give you credit. And, uh, as I said, I don't, I don't catch everything. I, I try to keep up with the Daikaiju news, but, you know, nowadays there's just so much news out there in the entertainment world. It can be hard to keep up, especially I'm just one man. But, uh, anyway, well, well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. To cover All Monsters Attack or Godzilla's Revenge, whichever you prefer, right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Great comics come in all shapes and sizes. Coming soon from the
1: Fire and Water Podcast Network.
0: It's Digest Cast, a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s.
1: Hosted by the Fire and Water podcast team of Robin Shag, and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests.
0: It's digest cast because big things come in small packages.
1: Coming soon to the Fire and Water podcast network.
0: All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. All Monsters Attack was released in Japan on December 20th, 1969. The release was part of what Toho called a Toho Champion Matsuri, sort of like a film festival, releasing the film alongside several shorts and other features. This was actually the first Toho Champion Matsuri of uh, others that they would do in this, uh, into the 70s. Now the film made it to the United States in 1971 under the title Godzilla's Revenge. Now, supposedly, the film had been tested in English under the name Minya, Son of Godzilla, but it never saw release under that title. Our writer is Shinichi Sekazawa. Our special effects are credited to Eji Subaraya, but um, Subaraya was very ill at the time that this film was being made, and it actually, the credit was given to him out of respect by director Ishiro Honda. Now Honda actually directed the uh, human scenes and the monster scenes to the monster scenes with the assist the assistance of Tsuburaya's first assistant Teruyoshi Nakano who of course you know would go on to become uh, essentially Tsuburaya's uh, successor on the Godzilla series our producer was Tomiyuki Tanaka and as I said the director was Ishiro Honda now our synopsis this time comes from uh, David Calitz a critical history and filmography of Toho's Godzilla series. I really like this book. It's from McFarlane Press. Uh, I recommend that um, if, if you're interested. If you listen to this show, you'll probably enjoy this book. I, I like it a lot. It's a good reference. And uh, I really uh, I like the insight that Kallet uh, provides. So we're going to use his synopsis. And it goes a little something like this Ichiro, a latchkey kid of working class parents, lives in an industrial apartment complex. Tormented by bullies led by the mean Gabura, Ichiro retreats into daydreams about his favorite movie monsters. While his parents are away at work, their neighbor, an inventor named Inami, looks after Ichiro. Inami shows his young friend a new toy, a computer, that Ichiro uses to launch an extended fantasy voyage to Monster Island. In his happy dream, Ichiro meets Manila and watches as Godzilla battles the evil monsters of Monster Island. However, Manila is tormented by a bully too. I foe is a giant goblin, also named Gavra. Meanwhile, two bank robbers hole up in an abandoned factory near Ichiro's apartment complex and wait while the police search for them. Ichiro wanders into the factory looking for broken bits of vacuum tubes to play with and discovers the driver's license of one of the gangsters. Completely unaware of its significance, he pockets it and blithely continues on. The robbers see him as a potential threat, however, and kidnap him during the night. In his fantasy world on Monster Island, Ichiro sees Godzilla teach Manila how to fight his own battles. Manila stands up to Gabara, and Ichiro resolves to do the same. Inspired by Manila, Ichiro takes on the robbers and successfully defeats them. As the police arrest the baffled thieves, Inami hugs Ichiro. When Ichiro's parents get home the next morning, they are devastated that their son was left alone during this crisis. As his mother cries in fear at what could have happened to her precious child while she waited tables. Ichiro goes out to confront the human Gabra with his newfound self-confidence. Ichiro wins the approval of Gabra's gang and dances off into the distance, a hero. So, that's that's a pretty good synopsis. Uh, most, Most Godzilla fans are aware of this film being the one with the kid in it. And Godzilla was not known for having children in the film. There's a couple of instances of kids playing major roles. This is the big one. And... It's it's very interesting because um, the uh, th- this you know the, the Godzilla series took a turn you know in in, uh, in '64 with Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, with the idea of making Godzilla a hero, and it had slowly evolved away from its more um, I don't want to say hardcore science fiction because there's never hardcore science fiction, but it evolved more into like a family sort of thing where there was something in the uh, film for everybody. Here, we've completed the the, the turn, and it's strictly a kid's film, and we'll talk about that more as we get into it. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of background here. i got another book here. This is the big book of Japanese giant monster movies, The Lost Films, by uh, John LeMay. And LeMay has just a little write-up here about some of the original concept for All Monsters Attack that I, I thought would be a good uh, good information to share. Now, now, LeMay writes, Initially, this film wasn't the stock footage opus it would eventually become, and would have featured new footage of Godzilla, Manila, Gabra, Kuomanga, cool the Odaku, the giant octopus, and Rodan. Godzilla would have fought Odaku in the water in place of the Ibera stock footage, and Rodan is a kaiju which chases Ichiro through the jungle rather than Kamakuras, as in the finished film. Now, Toho's big-budget Latitude Zero, also 1969, did not do well at the box office. Noticing the stock footage-laden Gamera vs. Virus was doing huge business, Tomiyuki Tanaka decided to keep costs down on the next Godzilla movie by having Shinichi Sekizawa make it revolve around stock footage. And uh, Lemay adds, It did not pan out for Tanaka as it did for Dai. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's certainly one way to put it. you know, it's, it's interesting. I've, I associate this movie so much with that stock footage just because uh, it's such an integral part of it that it's hard to imagine it without it. Uh, the idea of Godzilla fighting Odaku, I really like that. You know, we got to see Kong fight Odaku. We see um, Gaira fight Odaku. If you watch the, uh, the the Oddball alternate ending, you see Frankenstein fight Odaku, but never Godzilla. So uh, I would have liked to see that. As much as I like Ibera, though... Uh, I do have to say that would have been neat to get that new footage. And, of course, I'm I'm such a huge fan of Rodan. I would have loved to have seen Rodan in the film. He gets name-checked by Ichiro, but unfortunately does not show up. Now, I am almost certain that I saw this film before I saw either Sea Monster or Son of Godzilla. And I've been aware of this film for a long, long time. It was part of the Paramount collection of Godzilla films on VHS in the early 80s. So while I didn't own that particular release... I saw the trailer for it many times because it was always at the end of the other tapes. And uh, we'll talk a bit about that trailer in a little bit. Now, I believe that the first time I saw this film was actually on Super Scary Saturday, hosted by Grandpa... WTBS, the super station, uh, as it was uh, in decent rotation as part of that very fondly remembered show back in the uh, in the 80s and maybe into the early 90s. If you're my age and you had any access to cable, you probably watched some Super Scary Saturday. <music>
2: Oh, hi. It's me, Grandpa. (laughs) And welcome to another monstrous edition of Super Scary Saturday on the Super Station. Boy, do I have a treat for you. (laughs) This is better than having your own Red Cross Blood Bank franchise. Now, you've all heard of Wrestlemania. Well, I have for you (laughs) Monstermania. Super Scary Saturday Sports has assembled the greatest cast, the finest cast of monsters ever in a battle to the death. It's Godzilla versus All Comers! Don't let Godzilla's disarming personality fool you. (laughs) That boy is up to kick a son. Monster fans, this is it! Serious time, crunch time! Unquestionably, the only obstacle to Godzilla retaining his world's heavyweight monster title is Gatherer! Let me tell you something, you giant white lizard. I'm the prettiest monster and the meanest Godzilla. I don't care if you can be fired. We're gonna get the jack of your lap when you step on the monster island with me, Gabra, the giant cat from Monster Mania. I'm the one, the only, the true world champion. You may be pretty Gabriel, but you're also a sissy! You're forget that even my little BOY can whip you! You're gonna flip when you see the new moves i perfected from Monster Mania. I'm gonna recapture my title and there's nothing you can do about it! Ooh, woo! woo Wowie! <laughs> Godzilla is out to destroy all monsters! Now this should be something. Super scary spot it's proud to present for you! Ha <laughs> ha! MONSTER MANIA AND GODZILLA'S REVENGE!
0: In the opening credits, they hearken back to the technique used in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster with free frames of monster action from later in the movie. Now, the Japanese version uses the Monster March song, while the US version has a kind of stock instrumental piece. Um, I like the Monster March better, it's one of several choices in this film that I find that even though, from a content standpoint, all monsters attacking Godzilla's Revenge are almost identical, their runtime is within a few seconds of each other. Uh, I, I prefer the Japanese one now that I've seen it. And of course, it's it's a kind of a relative measure, but but we'll get into some of the details now. From the fantastical imagery of the opening credits with all the monster scenes, we whiplash straight to grimy realities. We see this industrial city that uh, that Ichiro lives in with the honking traffic and the trains and the just it, it's really not a nice-looking place that Ichiro is in here um, the lyrics of the Monster March continue here uh, we get um, stuff we get lyrics about smog and pollution and exhaustion and those are the real monsters so even though we normally consider Godzilla versus Hedra or Hedera however you want to say it I've always said Hedra Godzilla versus Hedra, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. The film that follows on after this. Most of the time, we consider that to the beginning of the ecological movement in the Godzilla series. It's right here in the opening of All Monsters Attack, talking about smog and physical exhaustion and all that, and how that's the that's the monsters. As we see the factories belching out smog in the you know the neighborhood that Ichiro has to live in. Um, this, this to me was an interesting note. in the Jap- Now, I, I watched the Japanese and the English. I'll talk about the English one a little bit. But in the Japanese uh, original, Ichiro's father, he's a train conductor, and his co-worker specifically calls Ichiro a latchkey kid in the subtitles. I wasn't aware that that term existed in 1969. It may have. 1969, of course, predates me, so I don't really know the answer there. Uh, but, of course, it could also be just kind of a later translation as part of the subtitle. I just thought it was interesting... Because it is the you know that there's no other term that explains Ichiro's situation, uh, especially if you're the right age and you had two working parents. Like I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this show did. I know I certainly did. Uh, that's a term that you're very well familiar with, and it pretty much tells you everything you need to know uh, about Ichiro's situation. Is um, as, uh, as, as Ichiro is walking home, we get to see a police robo cameo. Oh, Police Robo. I'm, a, I, I'm probably fallen way too hard into the Machine Robo slash uh, Machine Men slash Robo Machine slash Gobots hole <laughs> over the past year. Uh, police Robo, uh, better known here in the U.S. as the Gobot Hands Cuff is a classic um, Japanese uh, police car, and he looks exactly like he does in this movie. So uh, I just thought it was funny. I just expected, uh, you know, it's like, where's Turbo and uh, Saikail and Leader One and the rest of the Gobot crew? But uh, just a little aside, the Machine Robo in Japan, all the non-monstery-looking ones were all good guys. So it's okay if you want to display them together. It's totally cool. Just say it's a Machine Robo display instead of a Gobot's display. Moving on, because I'm the only one who cares. Uh, in Ichiro's little closet where he uh, pulls out his, uh, his radio, or puts up to the mic that he uses to, uh, to, to do his, his, uh, pretend play. We see at Ichiro, he's got a Godzilla toy. I'd forgotten about that. But when you open it up, he's got a Godzilla toy there. It reminds me of a scene in Ultraman where Pigmon is actually in a department store. And he's just kind of sitting in the department store because Pigmon's not a, a vicious monster. And... All around him are the uh, the vinyls of Ultra Kaiju. Are all around? I don't know if they're vinyls, but the toys of the Ultra Kaiju are all around him. So I just thought that was odd. Here, at least, gives the idea that you know Godzilla is a fictional character, not a real character. Whereas in that one, it's like, well, it's a little clear why they have Ultra monsters. But if they shot on location, so it was only appropriate. Now, as Ichiro begins his fantasy, it has an uh, the the film is in an oval frame with kind of a jeweled background ala- around it. While we see him on the jetliner. Uh, kind of an interesting motif to show that this is not real. This is all a dream, you know. Um, I don't know why, but I really like that it specifically says that the flight departed from Haneda Airport. For some reason, that detail really makes me smile. It's not just... Any flight. It's a flight from Haneda, so you know it's like a that's a big jet, right? They're flying out of a big airport like that. I have no rational explanation for why that amuses me. It just does. Now we arrive on Monster Island at about 15 minutes into the movie. Structurally, the film is very episodic, pretty much as you'd expect, moving from real world to fantasy world, fairly regular intervals. Our first segment here starts with a recut version of the first fight between Godzilla and the comic Kurus from Son of Godzilla. Most of the battles there, it's cut together a little snappier. It's got a jazzier soundtrack. Uh, It's almost like a music video, kind of the way it's cut, because there's a lot of quicker cuts, whereas The Fight with the Kamakuris was shot a little bit more traditionally. Uh, I suppose that one could consider this film the third part of the Island Trilogy, as suggested by listener Jack Bond a while back, following on from *Ibrahim of the Deep and Son of Godzilla. Of course, that is because it uses a bunch of footage from those movies, so is it really a trilogy? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I, write me in. What do you think? Do those three movies form a trilogy when the third movie is like you know half of the first two movies just edited together? I don't know. So now Ichiro, he, uh, he climbs a tree and sees some of the other monsters who live here on Monster Island. We get Gorosaurus, a uh, stock shot from King Kong Escapes. We get Manda with a shot from Destroy All Monsters, uh perennial fan favorite, Angurus, another shot from Destroy All Monsters, and the giant condor from Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. Now, there is... I don't speak Japanese. That would make this show a lot easier in a lot of respects if I could speak Japanese, but I can't. So, in the, in the U.S. version... Ichiro just says, oh, look at that. He doesn't call it the monster anything. In the, both the classics media DVD and the just release criterion Blu-ray, he, he calls the monster the giant condor. But the, the dialogue that he says, it's Owari. I can't even pronounce it right. Owari is giant eagle. So this monster is actually the giant eagle, but the subtitle says giant condor. So it's it's a big debate. Are these two different monsters? Clearly, it is. In Ichiro's fantasy world, the giant condor was a was an eagle and not a condor. He doesn't look anything like an eagle. He looks like a condor. I mean, it, as much as you know, more so than an eagle. Anyway, uh, it's it's tough. You know, it's like I I I understand that you know, uh, daikaiju otaku. We we like to classify things. We like to be very specific about things. This one's tough, though, because the subtitle even says giant condor. So is he, it's it, 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 It's a subtitle error if he's supposed to be saying giant eagle, but he says giant condor, but that's the official release. So it, um, you know what? Just, just roll with it. It's a giant bird. Let's just leave it at that. So uh, we go directly into the giant condor scene, giant eagle or giant condor. It's still the giant condor scene from Eber Horror of the Deep, meaning that Godzilla has radically changed appearances as we move from the Sun Goji suit Back to the suit used in Eber Horror of the Deep, which was the Monster Zero suit. So, uh, get used to that because Godzilla changes his appearance over and over in this film. That's the, uh, the danger of using stock footage. Admittedly, it's not as bad as God- Gamera vs. Virus, where some footage is in black and white in another otherwise color film, but, uh, but it's pretty noticeable. So, Ichiro, uh, following the fight with, uh, with the giant, giant eagle, Ishiro gets chased by the comic curse, falls down a big hole. Now, the scene of him falling and screaming is etched into my brain thanks to that Paramount trailer, VHS trailer for this movie as part of that Godzilla releases, because that's how it ends. It ends at him falling going, ah, and then it goes right into the trailer for Godzilla versus the thing. So, I, again, I always remember that ridiculous scream of his in the dub because of that. Uh, when he's at the bottom of the hole and he looks up, Kamakuras peeks in at him. That is the only new footage of Kamakuras in the film. And it's not even, we don't get to see his whole body. We just see kind of his head peeking in and then he kind of walks out. Now, after helping Ichiro out of the pit, we meet Manila, who is uh, down at child size. The suit doesn't appear changed other than apparently a mechanism in the mouth to allow it some motion so that he can speak to Ichiro. Now, Manila's voice is a very big difference in the two versions. I said earlier about uh, the use of Monster March versus the stock music. Uh, this, is, this is another one that really goes in the Japanese version's favor. In Japanese, Manila has a kid's voice. It is a woman making it, but it's still like a kid's voice. It's put through a filter. sounds a little tinny and odd, so it would be like a monster saying it, but it does sound like a kid. In the U.S. dub, Manila sounds more like a cartoon bear than anything else. I far prefer the Japanese presentation. that, that, That ridiculous voice that Manila has is one of the things I've never liked about Godzilla's Revenge, and it's fixed- To me, it's frankly, it's fixed completely in All Monsters Attack. Again, whatever you think of the film, just that particular aspect of how Manila's voice is handled is much better in All Monsters Attack. Uh, Now, Manila has a great line here where he says, oh, I won't hurt you to Ichiro. Ichiro asks if he means it. Manila says, yes, adding, we don't lie, not like humans. (laughs) I like that. Again, going back to Ghidorah, it seems that most monsters do not have a particularly high opinion of humanity. Uh, <laughs> this scene, we uh, at the very end, we get our first look at Gabara, you know, besides the credits. Uh, but then it's back to a real world using a blackout dissolver. Everything goes black except the lighting on Ichiro. And uh, he yells out for his dad, and then he's back in the real world. Uh, Ichiro's mom, we found, has to pull a double shift. She says as a maid, but she is dressed in, like, a kimono, and all. so are all of her co-workers. She can made at, like, a bathhouse or a hotel. I'm guessing maybe, like, a a fancy hotel that would have them dressed like that. Um And according to Ichiro, this happens all the time. Uh, you, you just feel bad for him after a while. I mean, I, I've talked about this before, that, you know, certain films, when, when you're a child take on one meaning but when you're older they take on another and when you become a parent take on yet another this is definitely one of those films so each other goes to play in the ruined factory and this is never brought up but i have to ask how did this factory become so ruined it's not just it's not just abandoned it's it's falling apart there are holes in the floor there's holes in walls is is this a, a leftover building that was from the war, I mean that seems way too far because I mean you're talking twenty five and almost well twenty four years. It can't be it. My first thought was, well, maybe this was a remnant of a monster attack, but the monsters aren't real in this film. The monsters are fantasy, so it's why this building has just become so decrepit is is really a mystery to me it's It's a crazy set that they're shooting on here i mean this place looks extremely dangerous and as a it's a good rule never go wandering around in an abandoned factory because you never know what kind of situation is going to be in there and it can be very dangerous um the uh as i said we don't get any context we only get this really sad state that Ichiro finds himself in exploring a dangerous ruined factory because his parents have to work so much i mean uh the japanese economy in uh, 1969 you know it was uh it, it was it was tough, and you know this this was a nation that was coming to grips with a lot of post war uh, post realities, and the, this is one of the reasons why the pol- pollution and ecology be- themes become so prevalent is because of the industrialization of Japan, and it's uh, you know it, again it, it it's it's a tough thing to think about when you're looking at this as a parent that this is the situation that this young man finds himself in because of the financial situation that his family is in. Um. When it, when his neighbor makes dinner, Ichiro actually feels bad about eating the meat, eating the, uh, eating the steak. He thinks his friend will run out of money because he's eating. Uh, it's, and again, it's sad that it, to think that a kid has to think about these things, but Ichiro seems a little more aware than most of his situation. He seems to understand that times are tough and, you know, his parents gotta work really hard and he has to, you know, ma- make a choice like that. Of course, he tells him that oh, well, I'll pay you to test the toys if in in food, and then he eats up all the steak anyway. So still a kid. Now back on Monster Island, Manila tells Ichiro that he, meaning Manila, has to learn to live by himself. You know, he says that like Godzilla's that's the lesson he's trying to teach him. This makes sense for a monster. It might be a bit harsh for a boy Ichiro's age. I mean, what is he like? Nine, ten? I mean. Uh, you know, that's I understand I'm looking at it as a parent in 2019, but that's a bit much, you know, for uh, the, even the 60s, I'd say. Uh, of course, life doesn't care sometimes. It's one of the aspects of this film, which, as I said, take on a much more melancholy tone uh, as you get older. You know, life sometimes doesn't care. So you Sometimes you have to learn to take care of yourself. So Manila's not wrong in that sense. Uh, From there, it's time for another Godzilla fight as Ibera hits the scene. Now, for a long time, this was the only way to see this fight in widescreen, because Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, of course, was in full screen being presented for television. It still holds up really well here. It's a really good sequence. So even used as stock footage, it's good stock footage. There's some continuity shots cut in with each and Manila as well. So, for instance, when Godzilla punches the boulder away when they're knocking the boulder back and forth playing uh, boulder volleyball, we get a new shot of the boulder crashing into the jungle and Ichiro Manila's reaction to that with the camera shaking instead of the boulder flying off and hitting the red bamboo base. When Ibra splashes the water with his claw, Ichiro and Manila are splashed as well. So, I thought those were nice little inserts. Now, the, f- the, the fight here ends after Godzilla rips off Ibra's smaller claw, um, which is unfortunate to me. It removes one of the best parts, which is Godzilla taunting Ibra with his own claw, which is just, that's hilarious. I love that bit. And we roll directly from there into the fight against Kumonga from Son of Godzilla, meaning, once again, Godzilla's look changes drastically. This fight is cut in a little kind of odd. It's cut to remove any shot of Manila from the original, because now Manila's not big, relatively speaking. He's small. Uh, now Godzilla wins with the first blast of Atomic Breath, Meaning we don't see Kazilla uh excuse me, we don't see Kumanga's death, only Kumanga flipping on his back. Again, there's some interaction shots added. Manila shoots a smoke ring at Kumanga, who then shoots webs at Ichiro and Manila, forcing them to retreat. Uh this another line that is burned into my brain from that uh, Paramount trailer in the US version. After he shoots the atomic smoke ring at Kumanga, Kumanga chews a ch at him, and Manila goes, How do you like that, weirdo? So uh, my, my brother used to say that to me fairly frequently. The next scene is Manila and Gabra. Uh, it's pretty short, but, you know, it's at least a new scene, which we haven't gotten much of here. The lower quality, the effects, it's pretty evident compared to the earlier scenes. You know, even Son of Godzilla with its uh, obviously goofy Godzilla suit. We talked about this at length in our episode about it. It's shot a bit better than the new stuff again. Um, the, 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 we talked about this when we talked about Son Godzilla Even though Godzilla looks odd Kamakuras and Kumonga Work really well And their fights are well put together uh, But you know, all that said The new stuff is still well done It's a lush jungle set And some nice suits Now I've heard Gabra described alternately as a troll An ogre, an oni That reads, he's big, he's green, he's scaly He's ugly, he's mean, he's got horns on his head Okay, good enough uh, G- Gabra always reminds me of an ultra monster because he doesn't have a tail. And now, yes, lots of ultra monsters have a tail, but that's just where my brain goes. Of course, there's a reason why the bully monster has no tail. Am I right? Am I right? Uh, Gabra also has a bizarre roar, which wouldn't have been out of place on Ultraman. Um, then on the uh, commentary on the classics media, he's described as like a car engine that can't quite turn over, you know, rah, 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 rah. Uh, <laughs> All this Ultraman stuff's appropriate as Manila pulls a Hayata to grow giant, doing so in several discrete steps like at the uh, last three minutes of an episode of Ultraman. Uh, the fight doesn't really last long. Gabra literally kicks Minya away like a soccer ball, causing the younger monster to revert to a child size and uh, retreat because discretion is the better part of valor. Next, we catch back up with Godzilla. It's the red bamboo fighter jet sequence. So once again, Godzilla has switched up his look. Uh, Manila has a great line here in the Japanese version. Was, humans have come to invade the island again, suggesting that the monsters, well, at least the earth monsters, the earth monsters, I suppose, uh, they're content to simply hang out on Monster Island, but get antagonized by humans. Uh, thematically, I tie this to the end of Destroy All Monsters, uh, with the uh, monsters living happily and peacefully on Ogasawara Island. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Jimmy. Um, <laughs> shout out. Um, and, and you guys are listeners who heard of the Terrell Monster episode. Remember, I really like the idea of the monsters living peacefully. So, uh, this scene pretty much straight from Hebrew Horror of the Deep. Favorite of mine because of Godzilla's agility and the camera work. He's kind of jumping around attacking all the, the jets. The pilot POV shots as a streak towards Godzilla has always been a favorite of mine. It looks like, uh, it reminds me we got a similar type of shot in Godzilla 1985 with the fighter jets attacking. We see kind of the pilot's point of view. Following on for the red bamboo attack, we get a new scene of Godzilla teaching Manila to breathe atomic breath. Now, the scene is similar to the one from Son of Godzilla, but for whatever reason, it's shot new. Um, I do like Godzilla. He makes a keep at it gesture with his arm after uh, an unsuccessful attempt at breathing atomic fire by Manila. It's a nice bit of uh, of uh, paternal um, response, a nice bit of suit acting from Haro Nakajima. Um, it, the scene has the same resolution with Godzilla stepping on Manila's tail to, get him to perform the attack properly. Um, Manila kind of waves at, at Ichiro after he does it. I guess that's the main reason. And maybe to make Godzilla look a little more, oh, I don't know, a little more friendly. He's a little bit tough in that earlier scene in Son of Godzilla. Um, Ichiro's watching from the, from the sidelines, so to speak, and he gets snatched by the man-eater, which is uh The big, you know, humanoid-looking plant thing. It would have been neat to see the vampire plant from Mothra in this scene. You know? They already had one carnivorous plant, but, yeah, oh, well, it's fine. The scene, it, it's pretty obvious watching it now on DVD if you know where to look that it's, you see the guy in the suit. But let me tell you what. That suit actor is still pretty well blended in with the scenery. And on VHS and broadcast, you couldn't really see him, even if you knew he was coming. He was hard to see back there. Back in the real world, Ichiro is kidnapped by the thieves. When he cries, he and, and the, one of the thieves gives him grief, he says, even a boy can be scared. Seems a bit more sensitive than the dub, which has, what did the thieves say? You cry like a girl. You are a boy, right? <laughs> oh, yikes. That hasn't aged well. <laughs> um, human conflict notwithstanding, we quickly end up back on Monster Island, where Manila is fighting Gabara. Uh, The choreography in this section is clearly more farcical, lighthearted than the previous stock footage. Almost reminds me of like a Super Sentai show more than a Godzilla movie. Uh, You know, we see Gabra lunging and missing at Manila and stuff like that. That said, there is some nice notable bits in here. Uh, Gabra grabs Manila in a headlock and punches him right in the face. Ouch. According to Wikizilla, This attack has a name. It's the Hammer Punch, and I can see why. I also really like Gabra's shock attack as uh, Little Man Manchon, who plays uh, Manila, gets to do some nice suit acting, his arms twitching jerkily as I'm doing up to the microphone for you to see. It's like Manila's doing a bad version of the robot. (laughs) Yitro gets into the action, too. He pushes a boulder on Manila's tail to allow him to shoot an atomic ray right at Gabra's face. It's sensible in this type of film for the kid to imagine himself as part of the fight, but in a way that has him helping Manila rather than fighting himself. Because if, if Ichiro grows giant and starts wrestling with Gabra, that's a Rubicon I don't think we're prepared to cross in this film. <laughs> Godzilla makes the scene pretty quickly, gives Gabra a hot foot, which leads to Manila biting Gabra on the arm, which is a great scene. And it clearly plays into the, the size difference between Gabra and Manila that Gabra's at the right height to just reach out and chomp down on Gabra's arm. It's really nice. Um, <laughs> this leads to a, a whole bit where Manila and Ichiro devise a plan to catapult Gabra. And it's extremely amusing. And I, <laughs> I, I posted about this film on a site that I, that I frequent. And one of the other commenters said that when he saw this film on a drive-in or something, and the title was put on the marquee as Godzilla's Leverage instead of Godzilla's Revenge. This scene could earn that, earn the film the title Godzilla's Leverage, uh, as they, they get him onto the balanced rock and then Manila jumps off. And lands on it and Seesaw catapults Gabra through the air. Gabra flying through the air. It's like a Warner Brothers cartoon. It's fantastic. its it, it brings a smile to my face every time. Once he crashes, we go right into the monster climax. It's Godzilla battles Gabra. Uh, Gabra bites Godzilla. There's a lot of biting in this movie. Uh, but see, soon Gabra's on his back again. Godzilla's stomping on him, throwing him around like a Pearl Ressa match. At one point, he actually, Judo throws him. Uh, similar to the fight with Manila, uh, shocker attack, really well used here. There's a, a really nice bit of combination of, uh, Nakajima getting a good bit of suit acting with the animation on, not the animation, but the animated movement of the mouth along with the, uh, combined with the optical effect of the current spreading over Godzilla's head and face. It's my, uh, it's my favorite new scene in the film. Even more so than and getting catapulted it's just really well done and I'll try to I'll try there. I there is in there's a, a gif of this on Wikizilla. I will try to uh, post it on the facebook um, For the facebook uh, post for this episode as well as uh, maybe try to put the link in the show notes And put it on the twitter as well because it, it, it's really well done in a sea of stock footage and a little more lighthearted stuff. I really like this shot. It, it only, lasts, only lasts a few seconds, but I think it's very well done. This all is the preliminary to the film's most famous scene, where Godzilla shoulder-throws Gabra, and Gabra lands right on his head. Yowch! Uh, Gabra runs off. Unsurprisingly, he just got thrown onto his head. And the original Japanese Ichiro calls him a cripple, which, uh, let's just say it has not aged well at all, and move on. Uh, at this point Godzilla finally spots Ichiro, but as he moves in to grab the boy, Ichiro's saying, No, don't hurt me, I'm your friend, I'm your friend. We're back in the real world. So inspired by Manila, Ichiro becomes brave, he bites a thief on the hand, just like Manila did to Gabra. Uh, The chase devolves into slapstick for at certain points, with the guy bonking his head and getting a box stuck in his head. So, well, even though ostensibly is in danger, one of the thieves is wielding a knife and threatening to, to stab him. There's not much threat evident to the viewer because, you know, they're not, as, as, it's just, you know, it, I think intellectually we know they're not going to really hurt him. You know, even though he's threatened, it's not a real threat per se. Um, <laughs> there's a very, very amusing bit where, um, the first, uh, the, the first thief who, um, Ichiro attacks with a fire extinguisher and he gets the image of manila using the atomic breath and uses the fire extinguisher and then runs out and the guy chases him and that guy is arrested the second thief is limping off because he's fallen through a hole uh down from the second story to the first story and he is limping off and the police i'd say hey get over here get over here and as they are arresting him he is bowing and apologizing profusely (laughs) <laughs> I, there's something very Japanese about that, about a, a bank robber apologizing to the police as he's being arrested. I don't know why that is. It, again, just brings a smile to my face. Uh, the next day, uh, Ichiro assures his mom he is all right and leaves for school. She cries, um, knowing how hard their situation is. And it's of, you know, she she basically goes, you know, Ichiro goes out to school and she immediately kind of breaks down. It's almost if you imagine she was kind of keeping up a facade be brave for her son and then she starts crying into her her apron and goes down onto her knees to pick up the the breakfast things and try and busy herself. It's a surprisingly real moment in a very strange film. Um now in the 1980s Honda cut this film down to about 10 minutes for a festival screening. Apparently they did this for just about every uh Godzilla film for this festival. Tellingly, this was the final scene in the film they cut it right here. So even though, you know, Ichiro had this scare with the thieves and he had this he came out brave and he learned some lessons from his uh daydreams on Monster Island, it hasn't solved anything about the situation he's in. And maybe he's better equipped and he's a, uh, you know, a bit got more self-confidence, but um, you know, it's it's still tough. And I will say this. Uh Ichiro is not ignored so much as he's alone just because they are working so much. The father makes a great point that he would like to, you know, save some money and move to a nicer place, but he can't, you know, they just can't afford it. So, uh, you know, it, in yes, it's still awful that he's by himself so much, but his parents do love him. They just have to work in order to, to keep, uh, keep things going and make ends meet. Um, now Ichiro fights his bully Gabara, knocking him on his rear end. Uh, and the Japanese W actually says, I, Don't like bullies. So Captain America, there you go. Right there, obvious inspiration. Now this, of him standing up to the bully, in and of itself, that's fine. But Nichiro goes and startles the man on the ladder who is painting a billboard causing him to fall. That is, I can't can't abide that. And now I'm going to get serious for a minute. I'm a registered professional engineer. I take safety very seriously. Uh, I'd like to take a few minutes right now to talk about ladder safety. So please consider this your health, safety, and environmental topic for today. Uh, now, ladder related incidents led to more than 150 worker fatalities and more than 20,000 non-fatal injuries in 2015, uh, which is the last year that statistics were available from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Falls are the third leading cause of unintentional injury related deaths. And the top cause of non-fatal injuries, according to a document called Injury Facts, published by the National Safety Council. And ladders have ranked 7th on OSHA's annual top 10 list of most cited OSHA violations for the last two years. In this case, 2017 and 2018, the last two years for which data was available. I uh, A couple of ladder safety tips. Only use a ladder after you have inspected it. Make sure that the frame and the rungs are in good shape, uh, no, nothing bent, nothing obviously damaged or, uh, or not solid. Only use a ladder in a safe environment, free from clutter on a firm level base. Do not stand on ladders which are on movable objects such as truck beds. I've seen this. You need to get a little bit higher. Hey, back the truck up. We'll put the ladder in the bed. Don't do that because that can shift. That's not designed for that. Also, you don't want to have, um, anything on the ground around the feet of the ladder. Anything that could be cluttered, um, that you could, somebody could, you could trip on or whatever or could upset the balance of the ladder. Um, maintain three points of contact. By this, it means two feet, between your arms and legs, contain three points of contact, so don't have, you know, one leg and one arm off at the same time. Always have two legs and one arm or two arms and one leg when you're moving up and down the ladder. Um, stay near the middle of the ladder as you're climbing. Do not extend the ladder while you are standing on the rungs if you've got not an uh, A-frame ladder but an extension ladder. Uh, if you need to extend the ladder, get off the ladder, extend it safely, make sure it's relocked, and then get back on it. Uh, do not overload a ladder and don't carry a load while on the ladder. Have the load brought to you instead. So let's say you're, you're painting either, um, you know, have the, have the paint uh, on the ground and on a rope and you can pull the can up or have someone else Hand it to you once you're on the ladder. Don't try and climb with stuff in your hands tool belts or Having uh, your tools clipped off or tied off also Okay, you want to keep your hands free so that you can keep maintain three points of contact on the ladder uh, Do not overreach while on the ladder and of course do not go on the top or second to top rung of the ladder um, as I'm recording this it's December I'll, Ladder safety is very big deal because people are up and down on ladders putting up and taking down holiday decorations And we've all been there. If you've hung Christmas lights, you know that, oh, I, I gotta reach just a little bit farther. Don't do it. Okay. Take the time to climb down, move the ladder because you don't want to spend your holidays in a hospital or dead. And I mean this seriously. This is not, this is not an act. This is not a gag. I'm, I'm completely serious about this. I do take safety and HSE very seriously as an engineer. So that's our safety topic for today. So let's get back into the movie. Now, at least Ichiro apologizes here, uh, but the message is ill-conceived. And and like the crippled joke from earlier, this has not aged well. I suspect the idea is to show that Ichiro was not a scaredy cat after not honking the motorcycle horn earlier when Gabra and the other bullies taunted him to do it. But I don't think that Manila would be happy with him causing pain on an innocent bystander as opposed to standing up for himself like he does when he fights Gabra. Of course, the scene is here for slapstick because the guy gets paint all over his face and all that. So, you know, I mean, it's it's obvious why, from a kind of structural standpoint, it's there. But I, I don't I don't like that bit. I frankly I never have. Overall, yeah, there's a reason why all monsters attack. It's always revenge, whatever you want to call it. Why this film enjoys, if that's the right word, the reputation which it has for a series of admittedly. Somewhat strange movies. I mean, Daikaiju Ega, they were popular cinema, sure, but they were still genre cinema, and they were fairly insular genre cinema at that. Given that All Monsters Attack is a really strange film, it takes a hard turn away from the family popular cinema approach to full on kids entertainment. As such, it is hard to judge it on the same merits as the films before it. So, to this end, I, ast- I assembled a focus group, namely my kids. Raging in age from 6 to 11, equally split between boys and girls. Now, these kids are familiar with Godzilla. They've watched all of the color Showa films prior to this one. As a matter of fact, they've actually seen this one before. That was more than a year ago. It was on Svengoolie, and we started watching it. I said, let me just go get the DVD, and we watched the DVD. Um, so after watching the U.S. release, watched the Classics Media DVD U.S. release, I said I watched them both, uh, I asked them some questions to try and gauge a child's response to the movie. So the first question, simply, did you like the movie? And these uh, answers go from youngest to oldest. Middle, which is kind of my youngest's response, if she does, it, is kind of, you know, I kind of liked it. Yes, totally a little bit. So mostly positive. I asked, what was your favorite part of the movie? The youngest said, the guy getting paint on it. <laughs> Next oldest said, uh, Godzilla versus Ebra with the boulder and then Godzilla versus Gabra then Ibra, the the Ibra and gabara fights and the paint the oldest said boulder volleyball and manila getting his tail stepped on i said what was your least favorite part of the film the youngest said kidnapping all the others said none they had no least favorite parts fourth question did you like the real world parts of the film the youngest again said middle and then no yes and no so a less response to the real-world portions of the film than overall. And the fifth question was just for fun, what's your favorite monster? The youngest said Godzilla and Ibera. Uh, next was Gorosaurus, Angurus and Ibera. Then Angurus Gabara, and Kumonga, Then Angurus Ibera, and Manda. <sighs> uh, while not scientific, it does seem like you can draw at least some conclusions from these answers. Now, putting aside ladder safety for a moment, the use of slapstick comedy right at the end seems to have been a good choice to send him home happy. The kids all seem to like the idea of the guy getting paint splattered all over him. Now, additionally, the inclusion of the extra monsters, despite having absolutely no bearing on the plot, seemed a good choice for the target audience as well, as the cameo monsters were very popular. My oldest really likes Manda for some reason. She really liked Manda when he was in Destroy All Monsters for like a second. Uh, Well, I guess Manda's in there a little bit more than like Varan or Baragon, but still not much. And Ibra and Angurus are household favorites, from me all the way down. So the real-world part's kind of a mixed bag. Overall, though, the kids liked the movie. I think it really helps that the film is a breezy 69 minutes, meaning that even the oddball parts don't overstay their welcome. This is far and away the shortest of the Godzilla series. And to give the kids their credit, Having seen both Eber Horror of the Deep and Son of Godzilla, they recognized those scenes as from a different movie. It's like my my second youngest said, these are from a different movie, aren't they? So good on him. Uh, but the kids were entertained nonetheless. Frankly, I think that's the takeaway from this movie. Common phrase bandied about now, at least at me, regarding entertainment is that something is not for you. Meaning that if you are not the supposed target audience, that you can't criticize it. I personally don't particularly subscribe to that theory, but it seems in this case at least, the movie written and aimed at kids is best enjoyed by kids. It's certainly not unwatchable if you're an adult, and as a parent, some aspects of this may hit a little close to home, as I said. So I say that this is best enjoyed with the kiddos on a rainy day, rather than built for serious critique and discussion. Now, if you want to own All Monsters Attack, well, the You have less options than you might think. (laughs) The original Classics Media DVD from the Godzilla box set is long out of print. As it's the, as is the much nicer later release with the both versions of the film. That's the silver foily looking one that they, uh, that they did, Classics Media did a lot of releases on. That's also out of print. You can rent Godzilla's Revenge on Amazon for $4 or buy it for a whopping $20. Eesh. Of course, the Criterion Collection set, which just came out, has it along with all of its show of brethren. But remember, not all the films on that set have English-language tracks. All Monsters Attack is one that does not. Uh, so if you are buying for your kids, could be a hurdle having to read the subtitles. Uh, amazingly, I own both Classics Media DVDs and the Criterion for reasons but <laughs> so uh, you know again if you want this one for the kids maybe maybe scour ebay it's uh, it, it's out there it's it's not the one of the advantages i think is because the movie is not super popular the dvd doesn't get too pricey on the aftermarket so if you want a copy of it with the english i think you can find it uh, with relatively easy so so what do you guys think what do you think of all monsters attack or godzilla's avenger or whatever whatever you want to call it uh, I'm really curious about this one. It's such a polarizing film. So many fans now just really, really don't like it. And I'm not saying it's it's great. It, it is probably the, the least of all the Godzilla series. But it's not as – I didn't find it as bad as its reputation was, at least in this time, watching the Japanese one. That really helped me. So have you watched the Japanese cut? Do you like it better than the American cut? Uh, did you watch it a lot as a kid like I did when it was on Super Scary Saturday or Captain Video or whatever? Right, write me in. Let me know. we at Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. I'd really like to uh, hear your feedback on this one. All right, folks. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Doctor, it burns when I pee. Me too, thanks to Atomic Flamin' Hot Cheezos, the hottest cheese-flavored cheese flavored Puff Corn Snack You Can Buy Without A Prescription! Wow, my God, that burns, but these Atomic flaming Hot Cheezos are worth it! Look for Atomic flaming Hot Cheezos behind the counter at your local pharmacy, or in your grocer's snack aisle. Atomic flaming Hot Cheezos, so good, they make it burn when you pee. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now, I've actually got three Iron Man comics here to discuss. Two of them will be fairly brief, and then the third one will be a little more in-depth. You remember last time we took a look at Iron Man Volume 1, number 193, featuring Iron Man, uh, along with uh, Hawkeye and Mockingbird and Tigra, tussling with a mutated lizard monster, which was controlled by dr demonicus and they never come right out and say it but the understanding is that this was godzilla who had been captured and mutated into this loyal beast so uh that ended on a cliffhanger with iron man flying godzilla out into the pacific and uh we are going to pick that up just a little bit and then we're going to move kind of in a different direction so uh, our first issue is Iron Man number 194. It's cover dated May of 1985. Uh, our cover is a, a split cover. On the left-hand side, we have uh, Tony Stark in the original Iron Man armor sinking down into the ocean with a few fish swimming around. And on the uh, right-hand side is the modern Iron Man, the uh, original uh, Red and Gold, which is... Uh, James Rhodes, and he is upside down, surrounded by weird geometric patterns and grids. And the cover copy says, the original Iron Man, sinking to the bottom of the sea, the new Iron Man, adrift in a strange dimension. And if two Iron Man aren't enough for you, we've also got Henry Pym, Hawkeye, Mockingbird, and a bizarre new villain. Um, so uh, yeah, this is uh, Luke McDonnell on the cover and uh it's a great cover i like it it's um I, I like luke mcdonald and iron man especially from this era there is a little bit of a coloring error in the corner box the iron man in the corner box is unibeam is not yellow but that's kind of minor uh, i like the split cover it kind of reminds me of like an old tales of suspense cover with a split cover like that uh, but pretty neat and i like the contrast with uh, the iron man in uh, f- uh, flipped vertically flipped so that one is pointing up right and one is pointing down And they have very uh, stark differences, no pun intended, in the backgrounds between the two with mostly black inks and some water around Tony, and then bright blue and white uh, geometric shapes around Rhodey. Uh, So in in issue 194, Godzilla only appears in two panels. That's page one, the splash page, and page two, panel one. Now the splash page... Uh, has uh, Tony flying with Godzilla over him. It's very similar to issue 193. Godzilla's size is inconsistent. He does look smaller here than he did fighting Tigra in the previous issue. Uh, Speaking of which, what happened to Tigra? We actually don't see her in the rest of these stories. I'm not sure what the deal is with that. Um, So, uh, you know, so I guess it's, uh, you know, unfortunately, like I said, sometimes it's tough with, with artists that are used to drawing superheroes, drawing monsters sometimes. Um, the second panel, page two, panel one, Tony runs out of power and Tony and Godzilla crash into the ocean. I can only imagine this made a really big splash akin to uh, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah or Godzilla vs. Mothra 92. Um, Tony uh, thinks to himself that Godzilla has lost interest in him because once they hit the water, we don't see Godzilla again in this issue. Uh, Dr. Demonicus is mentioned in passing by Hawkeye and Mockingbird as they are uh, they're, they're they're looking for Tony in a Quinjet and they go back to get the other wrecked Quinjet and they talk about Dr. Demonicus briefly. Uh, Tony's story is the main story here with him in trying to survive being in the ocean and stripping off the armor and getting back and then him the the character bits with him and Hawkeye. Um, but the action half of this is all Rhodey and Hank Pym trapped in. Uh, bizarre parallel dimension filled with, as I said, geometric shapes and patterns. It's the dimension where the matter comes and goes when Hank uses his Pym particles. Uh, Hank is in the Dr. Pym phase, where he's just doing lab science right now. Uh, It's a fun, if a bit straightforward, adventure. Uh, Amazingly, this is also the first appearance of the Scourge of the Underworld, as uh, Obadiah Stane uh, and his uh, enigmatic uh, female assistant, who uh, I won't spoil who that is, um, they hire the enforcer to eliminate the termite. After the termite failed to kill Iron Man a few issues ago, as the enforcer is walking out, he's approached by uh, what appears to be like an old homeless woman, um, and he uh, you know kind of blows her off, and then the scourge pulls out a gun and shoots him. And yells, of course, justice is served. I knew this was an early scourge of the underworld appearance. I did not realize it was the first one until I started uh, doing my research. So uh, there you go, 80s Marvel, Scourge of the Underworld right there. So a good issue. We build towards uh, issue 200. Um, It does kind of lay some of the groundwork for Tony's return as Iron Man. So uh, it's a good read, but uh, not much here in the way of uh, uh, Earth Destruction Directive-related material. Uh, next issue is issue number 195. Uh, the cover to this one also features kind of that bisected imagery. As uh, in the background, we have um, James Rhodes. And on the left-hand side, we see him uh, his Iron Man armor. And on the right-hand side is, is his, uh, play, his bare face, his unarmored face. And Shaman from Alpha Flight uh, floats right in the middle where um, Rhodey's forehead would be uh holding fire in both of his hands floating in the lotus position and uh the cover copy says can shaman help james rhodes find the cure they're going to go to the record store and find the cure no they're not going to do that that's the wrong cure um this issue has um kind of an interesting history to me um if you go back way back uh and go over to the relatively geeky podcast network my friend professor Allen actually covered this issue on quarter bin podcast episode 22 a long time ago and he had solicited me to send pre-feedback for that as an iron man fan so go listen to that and you get some of my some more thoughts on this issue this is an issue that i find all the time out in the wild i don't know why this particular one now there is no um godzilla or dr demonicus anywhere in this story uh, it's a, uh, a a great bit here where Bethany Cabe completely brutalizes two hired goons at a hotel. She's uh, in San Francisco. She's been calling on uh, Circuits Maximus. She's trying to find uh, Tony Stark. And she goes into a hotel room, and a couple of guys try to jump her, and she just mops the floor with them. And then she calls the front desk and says, Oh, can you send up a security guard? Oh, yeah, there's no rush. I, I said it last time. I would totally read a Bethany Cabe monthly book. Oddly enough, this story also deals with a strange alternate dimension. (laughs) Shaman takes Rhodey on a, a vision quest more than anything else. This dimension is more a Steve Ditko looking with, you know, bizarre landscapes and stairs to nowhere and random bits of floating islands and fire. I like this issue. Very off kilter for Iron Man and atypical. Uh, but again, very little to do with uh, Earth Destruction Directive. In fact, even less than the last issue, because no Godzilla and no Demonicus. That brings us to Iron Man number 196. Our cover, again, kind of featuring the duality um, idea. Uh, it has a shadowy figure with a cape uh, with his back to us in the foreground. And on the uh, on our left-hand side, his uh, his left-hand side too, because he's facing assuming we are, the modern Iron Man armor is charging at him. And on the right side, the original Iron Man armor is charging at him. And the shadowy figure is saying, neither of these two Jokers is the real Iron Man. I am. So we are going to get a little bit more in-depth on this one. I have here the uh, official index of the Marvel Universe for Iron Man. Iron Man number 196 was cover dated July 1985. It doesn't have a title. Danny O'Neill is our writer. Rich Buckler is our penciler, our guest penciler here. Uh, Ian Arkin and Brian Garvey on the inks, same as, uh, as has been for uh, a while here, going back uh, during Luke McDonald's uh, penciling days. Rick Parker on the letters. Bob Sharon on colors. Mark Gruenwald is the editor. And our synopsis, again, comes from the official index of the Marvel Universe for Iron Man. The Omnos, a bodiless magical being, takes control of Iron Man's armor and leaves the Gorge, which is where the alternate dimension we were in the previous issue. Shaman senses its presence and tells Rhodey to go to Tony Stark. At the West Coast Avengers headquarters, Tony works on his new armor. Tony offers Hawkeye a job as a new Iron Man, but he declines. The creature returns to Dr. Demonicus, carrying the Model 01 Iron Man armor that Tony discarded in the ocean. Omnos makes its way across North America, unknowingly puncturing a hot air balloon and endangering two newlyweds. Rhodey tells Tony that the Iron Man armor is gone, while Tony reiterates that he doesn't want to be Iron Man anymore. Hawkeye shows him the news where Obadiah Stane reports that Iron Man almost killed two newlyweds and demands his arrest. Tony cobbles together a costume and takes a Quinjet to investigate. Dr. Demonicus spots the Quinjet and follows, then sees the Iron Man armor and attacks it, while wearing the Model 01 armor. Tony immobilizes both armors, but falls out of the Quinjet. He uses his new gauntlets to slow his fall. Tony, Rhodey, Morley Morley Irwin, and Kleimanestra Irwin find Dr. Demonicus in his original armor, but Rhodey's armor is empty, as if someone has returned it to them. Rhodey has a voice in his head saying, You're welcome. Uh, so that's our that's our story here. I'm um, uh, I'm not going to go point by point through that. We had a, a lot of ground to cover, so uh, let's just just get on onto it. Rich Buckler, as I said, takes over as the um, the artist. He does the cover as well. The interiors. It's a little jarring. Um, the first uh, the first couple of scenes, especially the second scene where we get Rhodey and Shaman talking, his it, style is just so different from Luke McConnell. I'm not as familiar with Rich Buckler. I know Rich Buckler is a very popular guy here on Two True Freaks for some of his uh, other work. Um, it, it just was a little jarring. It's not bad. It's not. I'm not saying that. I like the art. It's just very different from Luke McDonald. By the end of the issue, though, he definitely uh, won me over and got me uh, really enjoying this, especially as we got into some of the action parts. Godzilla appears in four panels, having retrieved uh, the Mark I armor, which Tony abandoned um, to avoid drowning back in uh, issue 194. Uh, no explanation is given why Godzilla picks up the armor and brings it to Dr. Demonicus, but given the implausible nature of this story with energy beings from other dimensions inhabiting suits of armor and uh, Tony shooting the armors to activate magnetic circuits to stick them together, um, you know what, I'm, I'll accept it. I'll, I'll let it go. Now, Doctor Demonicus is uh, pretty much the main bad guy here, but he is a complete and absolute buffoon of the highest order in this issue. First off, he believes that he can pilot the Iron Man armor better than Iron Man because he's a genius. Because obviously, Tony Stark is just some schmuck, obviously. All right. Then, uh, Demonicus states that his goal is to bring order to the world via his and I swear I'm not making this up, Pax Demonicus, which apparently involves an army of giant mutated monsters to force his will on people. Now look, folks, I'm not going to mince words. I get that Dr. Demonicus was not a Marvel villain of high ideals and virtues. He was a mad scientist who makes giant monsters for Godzilla or the Shogun warriors to fight. That's what he does. Understand that. Even given that, Denny O'Neill treats him like an absolute fool, which given the rest of this run of the Denny O'Neill Iron Man run makes perfect sense. Compared to a threat like Obadiah Stane, who played this super long game to drive Tony to the edge and then push him over it all so that he could move in and take over the company. uh, Dr. Demonicus is like something out of a Saturday morning cartoon, and he's treated as such. You know, this this was the mid-80s in, in Marvel. There was this general push away from more ridiculous aspects, despite, you know, some of the ridiculous aspects of the story. But that was kind of the general feeling that I've gotten revisiting this. This was a little before my time for Marvel. But, man, Dr. Demonicus just comes off like an absolute idiot. And, frankly, I'm okay with it. I mean, uh, you know, he's, he's not a world-beater villain. He's a guy that makes giant monsters. So go make giant monsters. Now, this issue... Like others in the time frame, focuses on the fact that we have two Iron Men. Now, ironically, in this issue, neither of the Iron Men is Tony or Rhodey. <laughs> that really cracked me up. That one of them is Demonicus and one of them is Diomnos, but we still get two Iron Mans. Um, Spare Parts Man, as Hawkeye dubs uh, Tony when he puts together the costume, is is a, a really amusing concept. Uh, it's a key step. In what daniel neal is doing he's rebuilding tony stark uh you know tony is willing to put himself in danger even if tony himself questions if he's doing it for altruistic or selfish reasons tony even shaves saying that the beard was part of his drunken persona or personality i guess would be the right way to say it and that it's no longer needed this is a uh, According to the index, Tony has had the beard since 177, so it's been uh, it's been quite a while that he's been rocking the full beard. And uh, what what he means by that is that he wore the beard, grew the beard out to help keep himself warm, and he was living in the streets of New York as a drunk. And now he's kept it, even though he's become sober, um, because I, I guess it was part of a you know part of what the mask he was wearing and all that. So this is another step towards that rehabilitation. For those curious, spare parts man, who was the uh, the shadowy figure on the cover. This costume is made up of Hawkeye's undersuit and boots, the Vision's cape, a giant man's mask, a helmet, and the, um, the, the gauntlets the, uh, that he wears uh, from the armor that Tony is building right now, which um, I believe will become the, uh, the Silver Centurion, if I'm remembering this right. But uh, it's a really funny look. With the, with the cape and the buccaneer boots, he looks kind of like Blacklash. You know, uh, which he doesn't have the big ponytail coming out of his head, but but still, it's, it's a very funny bit. It reminds me a lot of, um, you know, Spider-Man wearing the Fantastic Four uniform with the bag over his head. Uh, now, Rhodey's relief at not having to be Iron Man, this would influence his portrayal to varying degrees going forward. Now, for a while, Rhodey would refuse to put on any armor. In fact, he would nearly die while being forced to don a suit of armor to escape the Stark satellite, Uh, A couple years down the road, in Iron Man 215, you know, but then by the 280s or so, Rhodey's back as Iron Man. You know, Tony is thought to be dead, and Rhodey's once again Iron Man. This transitions right into him being War Machine, and in fact, starring in the War Machine title and an identity he would hold for many years. Even in the modern title, which is Tony Stark, Iron Man, as written by Dan Slott, which, uh, as of this recording, has just ended to uh, transition to the Iron Man 2020 series running in 2020, which is appropriate. Uh, Rhodey has issues with wearing armor. In that series, he's choosing instead to pilot a transformable battle mech type mecha, which is called the Manticore, which is cool in and of itself. He's okay being a pilot. He's okay being in something armored, but wearing armor right now is a bridge too far roadie's been through a lot and the cybernetic parts he was dead for a while you know, a really good character and I, and I think it befits him to have um, you know so much attention paid to him and i'm glad that he's still still part of the story as as slot is writing it now and i hope that continues to go forward now some readers may find roadie being kind of shuffled off to the back kind of off-putting Uh, You know this and by this it by the point here We're pretty clear that we're gonna get tony back one way or the other and that roadie is uh, gonna go back to being a supporting character But consider this roadie has been iron man since issue 169 which is covered in April of 1983 meaning that his run as iron man Really lasts all the way until November of 85 with issue 200. That's two and a half years that Rhodey was the, you know, air quotes up to the mic, fill in Iron Man. That's pretty impressive, especially back in the 80s when this wasn't done as much. In the 90s, I would have understood it. I'm thinking like Kyle Rayner or um, Connor Hawk or some of the other, you know, so-called generational heroes. But doing this in the 80s, I thought was pretty cool. And, of course, you know, Rhodey is, is still a part of... The the mythos going forward. It's not like he just gets shuffled off and he's gone. Besides sticking around as a supporting character, as I said, he becomes Iron Man and War Machine and is still one of the most well-known and well-liked of Tony's supporting cast to this day. Uh, overall, Issues has its silly parts. Uh, the Omnos thing's a little strange to me. I guess they needed some way to get the armor back after leaving it there in 195. But the characterization carries today. Um, starting in the next issue, 197, it's full on, full throttle through issue 200. So a little bit of a somewhat lighter breather to get Tony warmed up. That's good. I'm okay with that. Godzilla has little more than a cameo here. Dr. Demonicus is absolutely no threat to Iron Man. And again, I must applaud Daniel O'Neill for even using the characters at all. He could have gone in a completely different direction. And Daniel O'Neill had no connection to, uh, as far as creatorship. Uh, The Godzilla series. So there wasn't any reason that he he had to bring them back. So, you know, if it had been, um, you know, if it had been Herb Trimpey or somebody who had worked on the series, I could see it. But uh, maybe O'Neal just had some uh, had some affection for them and brought them back. Now, as an Iron fan, I loved revisiting these stories. I'm glad that O'Neill gave me an excuse to do so by using these Godzilla characters. Um, and they're, they're neat, but uh, other than 193, there's really not much here for, if you're just looking to follow along with Marvel Godzilla, uh, I said he has a cameo in 194, more of an extended cameo in 196. If you like Dr. Demonicus, this is a good book to pick up because he's at his most, as I said, buffoonish. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, I said if you, you want to pick these up I have these in singles of course um, if you want to get them in a collection unfortunately they have not been collected which is amazing I would have thought there would have been a whole James Rhodes as Iron Man omnibus at this point but there's simply not they are on Comicsology, if you would prefer to go that route so taking a look at, at 196 here uh, a few of the ads we get the Reese's Pieces Add with the alien in the uh, inside front cover. We can't use ET, but we're still going to use an alien. Um, we have an Oreo maze, and I remember I remember doing this maze with uh, uh, in in some I don't remember what comic it was, but I remember doing one of these mazes. I just have a very vivid memory of doing this while sitting down in uh, my uh, in my dad's train room as a little kid. So um, so. Uh, I don't know. That is just the odd things that stick with you. Uh, Tootsie rolls, swap a joke, sweepstakes. Uh, the joke they show is, "How do you treat a hog sore throat with oink mint. Wah, wah, wah. I like Tootsie rolls. That's the main thing I took away from this ad. So, uh, we get the house ad for uh, Secret Wars two. Everybody's favorite. I'll just move on from there. Uh, Hodgepodge ad um let's see uh we get the same power pack and the amazing spider-man psa on tips on ways to prevent sexual abuse um another hodgepodge ads, a marvel super march always look at these and um every time they have uh one in new york it's always like in the city so it's not a store i'm ever familiar with from when i was a kid uh we get a um, subscription page for star comics with heathcliff Um, the only star comic I've really read a lot of is mad balls. I have almost a complete run of mad balls and my kids have taken those and that's in their kids comics box. Now they love the mad balls books. Although I do have a couple, I I think I said this last time, a collection of them. So I've read a few of those and all the original star comics are on here. Along with uh, the licensed books, Ewoks, Fraggle rock, get along gang, Heathcliff, planet, Terry, Wally the wizard, strawberry shortcakes, Muppet babies, top dog, Royal Roy and Peter porker uh no mad boss so um we get the uh the bullpen bulletins bullpen bullets this time is written by roger stern uh which is kind of interesting uh, in the hype box we get secret wars 2 dazzler number 38 which uh guest stars the uh, the x-men fred hembeck destroys the marvel universe you gotta love Hembeck and uh, black dragon which i'm not familiar with chris claremont and john bolton Present an intricately crafted tale featuring knights in shining armor, Robin Hood, magic, wizardry, and the Black Dragon. Don't miss out on the new heights of graphic excellence in the six-issue Epic Comics series. And Epic is pretty big right now because down below the hype box and checklist, we get a house ad for Dreadstar uh, and company from Jim Starlin. I did an an issue of Dreadstar on Back to the Bins, I want to say. So, uh, uh, good stuff. Shout out to... uh, to back to the bins, and I love Jim Starlin; he's a good guy. Meta, him con; really nice guy, actually. Uh, if you ever get a chance, I, I recommend it. So pretty cool. Uh, we actually do get uh, printed circuits. Uh, none of the names uh, jumped out at me as uh, anyone that that I might recognize here in the uh, um, in the uh, printed circuits letters page. There is a really nice house ad. It said they are the greatest superheroes of their world, and all in shadow, we see what really looks like. Uh Batman, the Green Lantern, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Hawkman, and it says they are the Squadron Supreme coming in May from Marvel. Very cool house ad for the Squadron Supreme. Um, we get a uh subscription ad with uh, Spider-Man for the regular uh regular books, not the Star Comics books. Inside back cover, the Stu Thompson Power System BM Experience uh from Huffy. Uh, this is ad always kind of stood out because my brother had this bike this white huffy racing Stu thompson bike my brother had it i had a, a red um a huffy bike which was a little bit different but jay had this white one in fact i still have it and uh, as we're recording this it's going to be a uh, given to my my youngest as her bike to ride as uh we have uh you know there's a lot of bike riding goes on in my household so uh, outside back cover is Young Astronaut Program, United States of America. This is uh, with Cap and the uh, kids looking up at the starry sky saying, reach for the stars. Uh, Join the Young Astronaut Program face the challenges of space exploration. So, uh, very cool. Uh, so, overall, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed reading these. I, I live for any excuse to dig out my old Iron Man's out of the long box um, and, and, you know, read them. It's been a number of years since I sat down and did a really long read-through of Iron Man. Uh, so any excuse to read Iron Man is always appreciated. And getting to cover these on Earth Destruction Directive, well, that's just a double treat. We got you know, Monsters and Iron Man, two of my absolute favorite things. So have you read this, uh, this, these Iron Man issues? you Are familiar with this era? Write in. Let me know what you think. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. All right. I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive.
1: Image Comics, formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers, creator-owned, mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. In April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands and fandom resounded with cries of
0: Pouches? Why are what is so it with all the pouches?
1: What? You don't like pouches? All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just you can spell it right.
0: All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now it is time for my favorite portion of the show, listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also hit me up on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, listen to the outro and get all the info you need if you want to get in touch. So our email today is from Jason Sunjacknetty. It's from my brother Jason, host of Bots, Bugs, and Babes, my co-host over on uh, Get Back to the Wrestling and the Vault of Starling Monster, or Tales of Terror. And Jay writes in, new Blu-rays and news. Hey, Luke, as of this email... We have recently had a few great new Blu-ray releases. Ordered the complete sets of Ultraman and Ultra Q. The, br- the price for a Blu-ray set of each series I felt was really reasonable and it included a digital copy. While I have not watched the disc yet, I was disappointed that the digital copies were not available through Vudu or Movies Anywhere. They are available through Spree, which is still great to have them digitally. It would just have been nice to have them on the Movies Anywhere app. I'm hoping to start watching them with my daughter this holiday season. Uh, I I told this to my brother uh, off air. I was so glad he wrote this because this is a this is crucial. You know, Mill Creek is advertising these all over Facebook, all over uh, pretty much anywhere. I've seen them advertising these just about everywhere online. And part of it's targeted ads. I understand that, but they're really pushing them on Facebook. And I keep saying digital copy, digital copy. And I love that they include a digital copy. It is a little frustrating that it can't sync with your Movies Anywhere, which is the one I mainly use, or Vudu, or any of the other services, um, that you have to get another site to go in and, and get the digital copy. This is true for all the stuff that Mill Creek's doing. I recently picked up their Blu-ray release of Santa with Muscles, starring Hulk Hogan. Well, holiday classic. I suppose uh, and that also is through this uh, spree service and over the Thanksgiving holiday they had a lot of stuff on sale for their digital spree service that you got to watch through this spree site I don't even know if it's an app I think it's just a site or if it's an app I, I haven't installed the app so I'm not sure but again they didn't have to include any digital copy so it is a little annoying that you have to go through this other service but uh at least it is there. it is still uh you know available to, it. and you're not forced to use. you still can watch the discs if you prefer so I appreciate Jay uh um, bringing that up and I have watched some of the ultra q disc and in black and white, oh man, is it good looking the 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 color stuff always looks sharp on the blu ray, but the black and white just looks incredible so i I hope that uh you and your your girl enjoy watching those. We're working through Godzilla instead of Ultraman in our house, so we'll get there eventually I'm sure. Uh, Jay continues, the other big release was the Criterion Godzilla Collection, the Showa era films, 1954-1975, uh, jumping out. This is the one I mentioned uh, previously, talking about Dolman's Attack. Uh, Jay continues, this was a huge announcement when I saw it coming out, and the set does not disappoint. I especially love the artwork and the book they come in. I do wish that the disc came in a case featuring that awesome artwork, but then the book would not have been as great as it is. I think I would have taken the disc in a great case with a booklet, but I'm not complaining about a great release. I know that there's been a lot of buzz that the Japanese version of King Kong vs. Godzilla being in the disc special features. This was a pretty huge deal in some circles, and I must admit it is pretty dang cool, but I expect nothing less than that from Criterion. Uh, yeah, I'll jump out of here again. Agreed. You know, I was talking about this on Twitter because the neither copy of King Kong vs. Godzilla on the actual regular disc in the set, it's the, actually the American one, whereas they include the Japanese one as a special feature because that Japanese one is rough. It is really in poor shape. The, the sound is good, but the picture is rough just because of the kind of the history of that film and how it was maintained in Japan. It's, it's, they don't, it's not great elements for them to work with. And there were people complaining about the quality. It's like, look, they didn't have to include it is my attitude. It's like, I'm just so glad to have an official commercial release any capacity of the Japanese version of King Kong versus Godzilla, which is way different than the American one. I literally, I'm a huge fan of both of them. I grew up watching the American one, but the Japanese one is, I can see why this movie was so popular in Japan. I'm glad just to have any copy of it. I'm with Jay. It's a big deal to get that. No, it's not perfect, but you know, it's an official release. The other thought I have is I just hope that having this officially released and available wide in the U.S. puts... To bed the notion that urban legend, that Godzilla wins in the Japanese version forever. I hope that's gone. And I need to say, well, go buy that criterion set and watch it. It's a good price for, for, uh, for 15 movies. Uh, so let's see. Jay continues. In other news, Amazing Figure Modeling Magazine has announced that issue 69 will have a Godzilla theme. The issue, which should be out in early 2020, will feature a history of Godzilla super deformed kits and tons more great kaiju related kits and coverage. All this and so much more destruction awaits you in the next foot stompin' city smashing issue of Amazing Figure Model, or I figured your listeners might be interested in that issue. Uh, Jay finishes, well that's about it for now. Thanks for the great shows and keep stompin' signed Jason. Yeah, I'm I appreciate that cuz I don't read AFM, Amazing Figure Modeler. My brother and my father are the modelers in the family. Um if you go check out my brother's uh page on uh Facebook, uh, either his personal page or the Art of Horror Collective uh, uh page that he runs, you can see all the amazing modeling stuff that my brother does and uh you know uh if you go listen to on Buds Bugs and Babes Uh, they, my dad and my brother did an episode covering Jersey Fest 2019, which is a big modeling convention in New Jersey. And, uh, Jay had, uh, he had a really, let's just say he, uh, his he's had kind of a tough run with some uh, personal stuff going on. And that was kind of a, a really big deal that show. And I I advise you to go listen to that. It's a lot of, a lot of fun on that show. But, uh, but yeah, but AFM is always neat because they've got these kits. First off, they, they do just not only regular kits, but like garage kits and stuff, that's way out of my league that I've got no no chance of ever doing right. So seeing somebody else building them up is a big deal. And kaiju modeling is this strange little niche inside of it. Uh, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier that as Daikaiju Otaku, we really like to classify things and have things be sized and all that. So it really gets into that. So I'm definitely going to put that out. I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe you can order Amazing Figure Modeler through previews um so i'm gonna see if i can order it through dcbs when i order my comics i'll my issue with g fan which you can also get through uh um through previews uh and if not i'll i'll go and i'll just go buy it from afm i'm sure they have a way i can buy a single issue or maybe a digital download of it and check it out so uh thank you very much for email jay really appreciate it see this is what i'm talking about jay keeps up on stuff too so any news or anything you find out just send it in anything you think would be interesting like this afm uh, magazine that's coming out. Go ahead send it in. Let's, let's share it with the group. Let's uh, keep the community well informed. So, social media likes, shares, and retweets for our last episode came on in from a lot of sources. We had, uh, love from Sadie the Skeleton Lady, Nathan Marchant, Jimmy from NASA, and together they are the Monster Island Film Vault, Robert Ludwig the Most Sane Man Among Us, Professor Allen, The Telltale Mind, Fanholes Podcast, Doc Strange, uh, Willie Lokomis, a.k.a. Mr. Lomax. Gene Hendricks at The Hammer Strikes. Akoyai Toshi. Toho Yarrow. The Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Two True Freaks. Bob Hansen, Podcast Partners, Jason Giaconetti. Adam Tebow, Derek William Crabb of the Fanholes Podcast. Robert Ward. Christopher J. Warden. Brian Sivar. Bro Rad. The hair metal hero, Chris Tyler. Arthur Ratnick sean foster and logan garrett thank you everyone every bit of uh likes every bit of shares and retweets help spread the word about Earth destruction directive i really appreciate it uh you know i've been i've been pushing my hashtag hashtag earth destruction directive on twitter and uh that's you know we're going to see more of that going forward in 2020 i've been really uh impressed with some new shows that have kind of hit the scene, some new Daikaiju shows. Uh, I've hyped some of these up on Twitter. I've talked about some of them here. Monster Island Film Vault, um, the Kaiju Apostle podcast, the Gargantia cast. There's some really great stuff out there that, uh, you know, I'd like to see the community of Daikaiju podcasts continue to grow, uh, especially when we've got some uh, high quality stuff. So, uh, thank you for all of your, um, your, Love on social media—it is always, as always, appreciated. So, what is coming next? Well, way back in the first segment of this show, I said that um, it was a, a preview that I was going to watch Rego *King of the Sea Monsters*. So that is what we are doing next. I'm going to take a look at this independent film that I've never seen before. I'm going in completely cold on this. Really looking forward to this. Should be a new and different experience. We're going to continue with our coverage of Marvel uh Godzilla characters appearing in other books with the Thing number 31 which is the next appearance of the Marvel Godzilla after uh Iron Man number 196. Uh I've never read this one. This should be interesting. Uh, I do like the Thing series in general what I've read of it. Uh this one has Devil Dinosaur in the cover. So I'm on, you know, hey, Devil Dinosaur and Godzilla, they know each other, right? So I don't think it's the real Devil Dinosaur but but still. So uh so come on back next time. Uh, we'll have any news about uh, Godzilla vs. Kong. Maybe we'll get uh, I doubt we'll get a trailer, but hey, you never know. Uh, any new information about new release, uh, Blu-rays or new movies coming out or anything like that, new Ultraman releases, any of that news, we'll have that. We'll have your feedback here. I've got a great email in the, uh, in the email bag from uh, a loyal listener that I can't wait to unpack. Uh, we, this episode is uh, running a little long, which is why I only did the one email. Uh, but don't worry, uh, that email's coming in and, and I, it's going to be a discussion. Uh, <laughs> so uh, look forward to that, I guess. Uh, but other than that, I want to thank everyone for downloading and listening. I appreciate every one of you guys and gals out there that support this show because without you, this show would not exist. I mean, I could talk into a microphone all day, but without you, without all y'all, all y'all listeners, this show wouldn't be what it is today. Uh, I also want to take the opportunity to say, remember that uh, this show is for everyone, and I really mean that. If you want to be part of this community, if you want to learn and talk and share your love of giant monsters, or even get to get introduced to giant monsters, you are welcome at a destruction directive, and and you can come on here, and, and this can be a place we can talk about giant monsters together. So, thank you all again for downloading, thank you for listening, coming back next time for Rago, King of the Sea Monsters and the thing number 31, and until then, keep them stomping. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at two twotruefreaks.com.